Now, please remain standing for just a moment longer. Let's read the text from the New Testament that we'll be preaching out of from Romans 14. I'm going to read for you uh, Romans 14, verses 1 to 18. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand... For God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat. And gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. You may be seated. So last time we looked at verses 1 through 4. We had a number of visitors here, so we had expectation of that, so there was a review of the book of Romans, where we've gone so far, and this is the beginning of a section. We normally do that, but I did it in more detail. So we got through relatively little, and the point as we get into Romans 14, there's this interesting laying side by side of foods and days, and you see that in Colossians 2, you see that in Galatians, um, and so this question of why are we, why do you see this pattern of foods and days being talked about? So on a on a basic level, what I want to encourage you to do is to is to realize every time you see those passages where the foods and the days are set side by side with each other, that those are passages that are talking about the Old Covenant food laws, and they're talking about the Old Covenant holy days. And so those things are a part of, they are major elements of, the Old Covenant ceremonies. And so what Paul is doing is he's talking about the change of the administration of the covenant. The change of the covenant from the old covenant to the new covenant. And that's not a different covenant in terms of, you know, one's the covenant of works and the other's the covenant of grace. It's the one covenant of grace in two administrations. And those two administrations have different external ceremonies. And the external ceremonies of the old covenant are more complex. And the reason they are more complex is because they were designed to break out all of the ideas into more external ceremonies so that there were more tangible examples to be able to deal with the church in its infancy, in its childhood. And so, in the New Covenant era, when the church is going forth to the world, and there's a 
maturing of the church. In this time, we have a simplified set of ceremonies. And so, the ceremonies of the New Covenant era, they pull together many things. Things that were broken out into many ceremonies are now put together into very few ceremonies. And so, all of the pomp and glory of the temple system and the sacrifices have been replaced with the Lord's Supper. And all of the initiation elements and circumcision have been replaced with baptism. And so we have an extraordinary simplification. And there are certain things that remain. For example, the laying out of hands in blessing is a ceremony. And that continues from the Old Covenant. And the laying out of hands for the transfer of authority continues from the Old Covenant. We have the wearing of head coverings for women continues from the Old Covenant. Right? There are some things. Why do these things not change? Because they point very specifically to ongoing realities and they're not fulfilled, completed, ended in Christ. There's not an ending of the male-female dynamic in Christ, but there is an ending of the keeping of women away from the sacrament of the entry rite. And so we have now baptism for men and women. And so, but at the same time, Paul talks about head coverings. And so we have both of these realities that there is an ending of a distinction in terms of the signs of salvation, but not an ending of the distinction in terms of the law order. The continuation of the need of the transfer of authority, we have an ending of the priesthood, but not an ending of officers. Because there's a priesthood of all believers, and there's an increase of authority and power of the believer in the New Covenant era, but not an end of the need of officers for order. There is a continued need for blessing, and now the idea that men, not just at the temple, but rather men everywhere, we're told in First Timothy, are to raise their hands in blessing. And so there is this idea of the things that continue, and there's the things that are ended. And so Paul uses the food laws, and he uses the holy day laws as things that are ended. And this creates a great deal of confusion, even now in the church. And the reason it causes confusion is because we have the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day, and we have the creation ordinance of the Sabbath day. And so the question is, how do we deal with this? And there's one text in particular that magnifies the difficulty, and it's in Colossians 2, where it doesn't only say the festivals are ended, and doesn't only say the the new moons are ended, but it even mentions Sabbaths being ended. And so you look at that and you say, how can we deal with this? How can this line up? How, How is the fourth commandment a ceremonial law? And so, what I want to do today is to give you a sense of the text that we're going through, but to also, you have a second handout, and the second handout is the vast majority of pertinent texts about holy days that relate to this issue. And I've given this handout before, I spent a little bit of time working on it to try to make it more organized, Um, but I have all those verses there. It's an effort to help to make this clear in terms of the fourth commandment and how it's dealt with in the new covenant and the old covenant. So, let me also give you a brief answer there about how we deal with the Colossians text. The Colossians text talks about Sabbaths, and the Sabbaths are the old seventh-day Sabbath. Those are over. And it has been replaced with the new first-day Sabbath. And there's not an ending of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment says to work six days and rest one. And that seventh day that we're commanded to keep holy in the fourth commandment, the word seventh there, the moral element is a one in seven. Like you say one seventh. You can also use the word seventh to refer to order. order, right? So the question is, which is meant in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment 
gives us a moral obligation to keep one out of seven holy. And at the same time, in the original institution, that one out of seven was the seventh day in order. And so the ceremony is which day? The moral element is the proportion. The ceremony is which day? The moral element is the proportion. And so some people don't see this as particularly important. Well, let me ask you this. If God didn't tell you what proportions of days to set aside for his worship, what proportion would you pick? Which proportion seems reasonable? How much of our time should we set aside to the holy worship of God? Whatever you pick other than 100% is totally arbitrary and absurd. God has given us six days to labor in our ordinary work and recreation, and one day set aside for the worship of Him. The other thing is, we tend to think, this is such an imposition. The glorious freedom of this in the Reformation era was this. Rome had created a host of feast days and saints days that made it so that work was difficult to do, difficult to plan. There was not a rhythm. There was not a reliability. And so it set people against each other. And it made workers do this. They'd go, I don't have enough time to earn money to provide for my family. And so they would start to work on days that they thought were holy. And these extra holy days... Depending on which part of Europe you're in, you can find that they ranged from dozens to literally hundreds of days a year. And so you go, wow, if I've got that many holy days, then all of a sudden the minority of the days of the year are days I can work. How does that work in harvest season? How does that work in a time when there's not just enormous prosperity? And so God's law, one day in seven, for rest, for the purpose of worship, six days to labor. And so that freedom from man-made ceremonies is glorious, and even the freedom from the old covenant days is a thing that simplifies our time and makes it so that we are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law. So, verses 1 to 4, you can see the notes I had on page 1. We're supposed to receive those who are weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of disputing over doubtful things. So, those who are weak in the faith, they understand and believe less of God's revealed word. That means the strong are the ones who understand and believe more. So, we're supposed to receive the weak into the church, into our affections, into our fellowship, work together. And, but that's not supposed to be for the purpose of disputing doubtful things. What are doubtful things? Doubtful things are the things you cannot prove from Scripture. And so disputing, it's good to talk about things, it's good to even have hypothetical debates, well what if this or whatever, but disputing or debating in the sense of trying to convince somebody of a position, if you don't have certainty from the word of God you should not impose on another a doctrine or commandment now if you're not sure okay fine, you've got to deal with that but if you're not sure you can't impose it on another. So, you can talk about why you're not sure, you can ask questions, but you cannot try to hold others accountable to it. So, the food that's talked about, this is talking about kosher foods. We talked about Acts 15 and the four laws that relate to foreigners in Israel that are out of Leviticus 17 to 19. So, Acts 15 is saying, look, you can't eat blood. You can't eat meat that has blood kept in it intentionally. You can't eat food dedicated to idols. And the sexual laws out of Leviticus there that teach us who we can marry, how close of a relative, and how far away, and also that's whether by blood or by marriage. Those are ceremonies. Those are ceremonial laws. They're not a part of the initial moral law given, put on the heart of Adam. These are ceremonial laws that were given to the foreigners in Israel, and they're also now things that continue to be obligatory in the New Covenant Church. They are not things that differentiated Jew and Gentile, and are therefore not a part of the things that are ended with the ending of the old ceremonies. 
Now, when you read this text, right, look at verse 3. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. This doesn't make sense if we're talking about a thing that God has actually authorized. If God's actually, um, if we're not talking about a thing that God has actually authorized, forgive me. Uh, this only makes sense if we're talking about a thing that God has actually authorized. If somebody is just sinning, then you're supposed to judge that. That's something that Christ judges, and therefore we're supposed to use the standard of the Master. Uh, the one who's strong is actually believing what's been revealed. And the one who's weak is failing to believe some of the explicit statements or necessary inferences of what's been revealed. So, you can't take this and apply it to things that are sin. This is only about things that God has authorized. And so, that limits it. And so, this is, this is an instruction about how you engage in conflict. If you can't prove it, you can't impose it on others. If you can prove it, Try to help people grow in their liberty, but don't try to convince them to do stuff until they're convinced. You convince them about the doctrine, and then you help them with the practice. Verse 4. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. We are not permitted to judge except for the standard that God has given, so that our judgment is not the judgment, but rather the judgment of our master. So, go to page 2. Verse 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats to the Lord, sorry, he who eats, eats to the Lord. He who gives God, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. All right, so the question is, if one person esteems one day above another, another seems every day alike, can they both be right? No, they can't. Somebody's right. And so this is the context of if one of them's a weaker brother, how are they weaker? Okay, well, is a person who's keeping the Lord's Day, a new covenant Sabbath, is that brother weaker? How would they be weaker? Here, here's the position you have to hold to if you think this is talking about the Lord's Day, the first day Sabbath. Well, God never instituted a new covenant Sabbath. God never instituted the first day Sabbath. The day of the resurrection is not to be kept as a Christian Sabbath. But people who believe that are weaker brothers because a weaker brother, by definition, is a person who makes up doctrine out of their fevered brain. Well, I thought a weaker brother was a brother who didn't believe all the things that were revealed. Right? Because it's they have some faith, they're a brother, but they don't believe as much as somebody else. And the person who believes more has a stronger faith. I didn't realize that a weaker faith was superstition. I didn't realize that the weaker brother is the brother who makes up doctrines. I thought that was just sin of a different variety. Not failing to believe, but rather inventing doctrines. So this cannot possibly be talking about a Christian Lord's Day. It cannot be talking about a Christian Sabbath. Because if it's talking about the Christian Sabbath as an invented doctrine of weaker brothers, then... It's taking the word weaker brother, and as opposed to saying the person with a weak faith is believing less of what's revealed, it's now saying the person with weaker faith is a person who's inventing doctrines whole cloth. That's not weak faith. That's superstition. So, here's an alternative. And I think it's obvious, given the context that we're talking about Jews and Gentiles in this book, and a differentiation. The weaker brother still believes he's obligated to hold to the old covenant holy days. The stronger brother understands how Christ's coming, dying, and being raised again puts an end to the old covenant holy days as obligatory. 
And so there's more truth that the stronger brother believes. And there's less truth that the weaker brother believes. He's right that God instituted these old covenant days. But he fails to have the additional strength of believing the way in which Christ fulfilled them and seeing how that has come and seeing how, therefore, there is no further obligation to keep them. But it was still lawful. The the, the stronger brother could allow the weaker brother to continue to use these days. Why? Because they were passing away and had not yet passed away. The Lord, in his mercy, gave a period of time during which it was allowable to keep the old covenant, but it was not obligatory. And that short period of time is roughly the period of a generation from the resurrection of Christ to the destruction of the temple. And the destruction of the temple puts an end to sacrifice. We're told that in Daniel 9. And that's, you know, Christ puts an end to the need for sacrifice, but the destruction of the temple put a practical impossibility on the sacrifice. Now, that period of time, that generation, that roughly 40-year period, is a period of time that was used for the discipline and training and testing of the church to prepare it. And God used it to increasingly separate the old covenant synagogues from the new covenant synagogues. The old covenant assemblies from the new covenant assemblies. Some of the old covenant assemblies transformed into new covenant assemblies. Some of them split. And some of them simply rejected the new covenant. And the ones that rejected the Messiah and rejected the new covenant or the people that split and stayed rejecting the new covenant, they are synagogues of Satan. They reject the Lord. They do not believe Moses because they did not believe Christ. And so, what we have there is that period of time being used as a sifting period to help to bring along Old Covenant believers and to deal with the bringing in of the Gentiles in that time. So, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. The thing that's difficult there is esteeming every day alike. The esteeming every day alike. People say, that can't possibly be talking about just the Old Covenant days. This has to also be talking about New Covenant days because esteeming every day alike is not the doctrine of holding to a Christian Sabbath. And so, if that's the case, I think we have clear contradiction in the Bible. You have a commandment from creation and reiterated in the Ten Commandments to have a holy day, one in seven. You have the fact that that creation ordinance is not some old covenant ceremony It's given before the fall. You have the fact that we are told that the Sabbath day is the day for gathering together. And we are supposed to have a gathering together on the first day. And so you have these practical realities. And you have the fact that Hebrews tells us that there remains a Sabbath for the people of God. And We have the fact that we're told that there's a Sabbath day that Christians are to deal with in Matthew 24. And we're told the fact that there's an ending in the book of Matthew as well. We'll go to the text of the Sabbaths in the first of the Sabbaths. And so you have this problem of how do we deal with this claim that every day is alike. And so the every day being alike is a statement that is limited by the context. It's the Old Covenant days are no longer obligatory. That's what it means. It's in reference to the days that are being talked about. One person esteems one day above another. These are the Old Covenant ceremonial days. And another esteems every day alike. This is talking about, in that context, that those days are no longer obligatory. All of the days that are being talked about are no longer obligatory. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind 
He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. Okay, so is it okay to just believe whichever doctrine as long as you're fully convinced and the only sin is not being convinced of one way or the other? Does that work for any other doctrine at all? Some believe in the Trinity, some don't believe in the Trinity. Let each be fully convinced. But where does this work? Where is this okay? The only place this can possibly be okay is in a time where you have the overlap and you've got the old covenant and it's no longer obligatory and you're still allowed to do it. Remember the analogy of weaker and stronger as regards faith. Weaker faith is not making up doctrines. Weaker faith is believing less. So who's the weaker brother here? And how does it relate to the food and the Sabbath? Or food and holy days? We've already talked about that. This is talking about the old ceremonies that differentiated Jew from Gentile. The old covenant ceremonies. The days and the food laws that differentiated Jew from Gentile are no longer obligatory and in fact are passing away at the time of the writing. When they have passed away, they will become sin. God mercifully gave an overlap period of time, the space of about 40 years, one generation, to allow the people to deal with the change. Now, during this time, verses 7 through 13, there's this importance of saying, look, we're still brothers. You think you have to hold the old covenant obligations? We're still brothers. I don't think we have to. I need to talk to you about that, but I need to avoid causing you to stumble while we're talking about it. So I'm going to refrain from eating things that are not kosher. I'm going to refrain from other things that might be offensive to a Jew. But that only works as long as the Jews are not imposing the obligation. And so what happens is you have a fight in church history during this time where the Jews start to say, no, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to keep the whole Old Covenant ceremony set, and if you're not doing it, you're not a Christian, you can't be saved, you need to be excommunicated, and so you have this fight that comes in Acts 15. And the Acts 15 fight is in that context, and in that context, there then becomes sort of this removing of the general tendency to just kind of keep the Old Covenant laws that were no longer obligatory and you have a tendency towards starting to say no I'm not going to do this and you can't impose it on me because the tendency became as time went on after the death of Christ that before the destruction of Jerusalem the Jewish believers were still trying to push more and more for the old covenant law to be observed in the new covenant church and so Paul at one point is willing to circumcise one of the men with him to avoid offense and at another point, he says, no, we're not going to do this. He doesn't have to do it. You can't make him. Let's talk about this. And so this unwillingness to, to deal with it, to unwillingness to just remove the offense, as the conflict deepens, where there was a bending to try to help the weaker brother, when the weaker brother hardens and seeks to tyrannize by imposing things that are not obligation, the stronger brother starts to have an obligation to push back, to say no, and to fight. Now, this text, verses 7 through 13, is talking to us about how to deal with things before the deepening. So it says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us, no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So this idea of rely upon the judgment of Christ, rely upon what he's revealed, rely upon him in terms of his judgment to come. So then, each of us shall give account of, God, of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So, those who believe all live and die with the purpose of the glory of God in mind. 
We are all owned by the same master. We all seek the same goal. We should be careful to not despise each other for not knowing the full freedom we have. We should not despise each other for refusing to be bound by things that are not provable as obligation. So if your conscience is bothered, <coughs> but you can't prove the thing is wrong, and you're seeing the other person do it, you have an obligation to not despise them, but to go research further. And once you can prove it, then sure, you can rebuke. But until you can prove it, you don't have the right to say, this is wrong, what you're doing is wrong. We should not despise each other for refusing to be bound by things that are not provable as obligation. Do not cause offense without duty to do so. So on the other side of that, you don't, if you're aware that somebody else is unsure about a thing, is offended by a thing, you avoid doing it in front of them, you avoid doing it uh, insofar as you don't have a duty. You give up liberties for a time. You don't agree to give up liberties institutionally. You don't agree to codify it in law. You don't agree to codify it in terms of vows or covenants. But you give up liberties for a time for the good of the neighbor. All right. So, page three. I know I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Right? This idea that you're no longer using your freedom for the good of your neighbor if you use it in such a way that grieves him. <coughs> do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. That doesn't make any sense unless it's actually something you're authorized to do by the law of God. It's good if it's authorized by the law of God. Don't let your good be spoken of as evil. Is saying, the thing you're actually authorized to do by the law of God, don't let it be spoken of as evil because of your failure to use it for the goal of the good of your neighbor and the glory of God. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Right, so, you're not just trying to strong-arm Old Covenant believers into using their New Covenant ceremonial freedom. You're trying to help them to see how the ceremonial freedom from the Old Covenant laws shows the righteousness of Christ, shows the peace that we can have in Jesus, shows the joy that we ought to have in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So the idea here is there are things that are acceptable to God and when you're using them rightly, it's going to commend you to men. It's not going to just be, oh, these Christians, you know, they're blah, 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 blah. It's going to be God says what you're doing is acceptable and you use it in such a way that it generally, that it generally brings the approval of men. Wow. Look how they're laying down their rights. Look how this person's sacrificing to help this other person benefit. So, unclean here is obviously pointing to the kosher laws. The lumping together of foods and days over and over shows that this is about the things that were specific to the Jews in the Old Covenant that have been changed, the ceremonies. So that Gentiles who have the law that's transformed in Christ, right, the New Covenant law, do not have the same ceremonial obligations. The old ceremonies that continue are expressed in Acts 15 and the transformation is explained throughout the New Testament. The Ten Commandments are not ceremonial, they're moral. The book of Luke, the book of Acts, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Hebrews, these books all focus on the changes of ceremonies and order from the Old Covenant Church to the New Covenant Church. It is a dominant theme for them. So Luke is focused on the priestly work of Christ, and so is the book of Acts. It's also written by Luke. And so it focuses on the changes of administration and the priestly work of Christ. First and Second Corinthians focus upon the use of gifts in the church, and they talk about church discipline and administration. Okay, so these are in replacement of the administration of the temple. And the book of Hebrews obviously focuses on the change of ceremonies. And so you look at it, and it relates to the priesthood and the temple and, and talks about that and talks about what Christ did there. These are the books that principally help to deal with those changes. So there's the, the text out of 
Romans. So go to the second handout. So the second handout here, of the first page, you've got all this stuff from Acts 15, and it shows, I've highlighted all the places where it shows the dispute is about the old covenant ceremonies. It refers to circumcision, the law of Moses, and uh, the idea of the differentiation of Jews and Gentiles. Verses 19 to 21 um, talks about how the things that are being proposed were taught in the synagogues every Sabbath. Um, and so as a result, there is this propounding of these are the things that Jews expected even strangers, foreigners, to keep when they were in the synagogue. And so, the Jews in the synagogues should be able to say, you're a stranger or foreigner who is a God-fearer if you keep these ceremonies. And so they ought to not be able to try to condemn you on those grounds. And so that should give space to operate. So that gets put into a letter at verse 29, and there's the command to abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. It's on page 2. These things are called necessary things. This is not man-made law. This is not the council inventing law. They're necessary things. It says it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It's from the Holy Spirit. It's necessary things. And these are things that were imposed on Jew and Gentile alike in the Old Covenant. If you keep from these, you will do well. There's a third statement that these are good works. Okay? It's from the Holy Spirit. They're necessary, and you do well when you do them. These are not man-made laws. These are not just for the sake of the conscience of other people. These are things that are obligatory. Now, there was a rejoicing and an encouragement that came from this letter. We see in the bottom of page 2, Galatians 4, look at verse 8 that's highlighted. It says, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those by nature, those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. So there seems to be a reference here to the idea of serving false gods. And at the same time, Galatians is talking a lot about the Judaizers trying to come in and, and impose ceremonies. So there seems to be sort of this like idea of the relationship of trying to make things binding that are not binding to be a type of idolatry. And so if we take the old ceremonies and try to impose them in the New Covenant era, that's a type of idolatry. These are weak and beggarly elements. So the Old Covenant administration is weak in comparison to the New Covenant administration. They are beggarly, they're poor in comparison to the richness of the New Covenant administration. And so the reference to observing days, months, seasons, and years are things that are ended. These are the Old Covenant days, months, seasons, and years. What are the years? You know, the one in seven, your, your Sabbath, and the year of Jubilee. These are the years. The seasons have to do with the feast days. The months have to do with the new moon, the, 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 one, the one in 28-day Sabbath, once a month. And the days, that has to do with the Old Covenant Sabbath, the last day of the week Sabbath. Okay, so then, go to page 3, to Colossians 2, verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Right? Food and drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. Okay, these are the Old Covenant, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. And then, here's the food and drink laws. We've already seen in the, New, in the New Testament there are some food laws that still apply. And so, why do I put these things side by side? Because the apostles did. Why are they doing that? To show us in the same way, just as we can eat all foods now, and we can keep, we can keep every day alike, 
that's not absolute. That's the general principle. And then there's the reality that there are still some food laws that apply. And there's still some day laws that apply. But they're not the ones from the Old Covenant. The idea is we're freed from all of the ceremonies of the Old Covenant, except the ones that we're told continue. And the day is changed. The ceremony of the day is changed. It's no longer the last day of the week. The ceremony's changed. It's now the first day of the week. But it's still the same proportion, one in seven. If you died with Christ from the basic principles, verse, verse 20, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So in Galatians, there's this connection to man-made religion, the idolatry, and then there's the, the Jewish laws, the old covenant laws, and they're connected together in relationship to idolatry. Here in Colossians, again, you have the Jewish laws about food and days, and then you have the man-made rules. They're set next to each other. They're both kinds of idolatry because we're no longer obligated to keep the old covenant days. We're no longer obligated to keep the old covenant food laws. And we can't make up new food laws, and we can't make up new holy days. And so both of them were to carefully guard against to avoid saying by keeping the old covenant that Christ hasn't come, and to avoid saying by using man-made things that God is not the authority, but instead man is. Page 4. Romans, we read this, you know, verse 5, Romans 14. One person esteems every day above another. So one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he does not eat to the Lord. He does, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat, and gives God thanks. Right, so over and over again, the connecting of the food laws and the day laws. Now, so let's consider this. The, the, we, we look at this, and people want to say, hey, this teaches that there's no obligation to keep the Sabbath day now. Because it's a part of the, the stuff that was required from the Mosaic Law. Let's consider how the Sabbath is established in the Scripture. Bottom of page 4, Sabbath before, during, and after the Mosaic period. Look at page 5. How is the Sabbath instituted? Well, it's a creation ordinance. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. We have God resting from creation. And he blesses the seventh day. He sanctifies it. He makes it holy. Because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So did God rest from all of his work? No, he, he rested from all of his work of creation. No more creation work. Now, we know that because that's what the text says he rested from. But also, John 5.17, Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now. I thought he was resting. Working until now? He said he was resting. Well, he rested from his creation work. My father's been working until now. And I've been working. This is the rest from creation and the work in providence. So, when we rest on the Sabbath, does that mean we have to like just lie there in a catatonic state? A man is resting from his ordinary work, and recreation does not, and he's resting from his ordinary recreation, and it does not mean resting from all work. We do the work of worship. It's work to worship. It's hard to keep paying attention to all these verses about food and days. It's work. But it's a work you're called to. The creation ordinance was observed before the giving of the Ten Commandments. We have an example of this in Exodus 16. Right? It's, it's, it's established in the creation. God blesses the Sabbath day, which he's blessing it for our use. He, he sanctifies it. He makes it holy so that we are to use it for a special purpose, set apart to God. But then we also have this example in Exodus 16 
before the giving of the Ten Commandments, God was giving manna from heaven for the people to eat, and he says, collect it for the six days. On the sixth day, collect a double portion. Every other day, only collect one portion. People didn't listen. They tried to collect a double portion or extra on the other days. God made it rot and stink. And at the same time, when they collected it on the sixth day, the, sec- the, the sixth day collection, that double collection did not rot on the Sabbath. And that was to teach the idea that the day before the Sabbath is a day of preparation where you prepare things to keep a Sabbath. So remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy is about preparing for it, planning for it, ordering things to make that work. So this is before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, at the bottom of page five, Sabbath is created in the great summary, is captured in the great summary of the law, the Ten Commandments, as a central thing. The moral element is the proportion of time The ceremonial element is the day, the last in the week. So we're told in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now, we're reminded at the end of that, it says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. There's a reminder of the institution. So he's saying, in, in, in Exodus 20, God is telling us the reason for the Sabbath day points back to the establishment of it, which points to creation. And at the end of Exodus, in, verse 35, in chapter 35, verses 1 and 2, you have a reminder about the Sabbath day. So there's this, this reminding that occurs. Go to page 6. In Deuteronomy 5, we are given a different reason for the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5 has a restatement of the Ten Commandments, and here it says a reason for the Sabbath. We're told to work six days and to rest on the seventh day as a Sabbath, and the reason it's given is at the end of the text. It says, And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Which was it? Is it because of creation? Or is it because he redeemed them out of slavery? Well, the addition of the reason, right? God hadn't redeemed them out of slavery when he instituted a creation. But God is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he adds a reason. He adds a reason. Why do you think God added a reason, saying... Also, you should keep the Sabbath because I redeemed you out of slavery. It was a preparatory thing for the change of the Sabbath to understand that the work of redemption is the reason for the day. And so this change when the accomplishment occurs, the, there's the creation, and then when Christ is resurrected, he's the firstborn of the new creation. When he's resurrected, he's the firstborn of the new creation. So, Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Matthew 12, 8. For the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath day. Jesus acknowledges that there's a Sabbath that Christians should care about in Matthew 24, verse 20. When he's talking about fleeing the destruction of Jerusalem, he says, hey, when there's armies around, you should run away. He says, but pray that your flight is not in the winter, nor on the Sabbath day. Why would Christians care about the Sabbath day? Unless they have a Sabbath. There's a Christian Sabbath also. This is the time that Jesus is prophesying about. Matthew 28 shows the change of the Sabbath. Matthew 28, verse 1, the the translation is, At the end of the Sabbaths, as it began to dawn toward the first of the Sabbaths, is talking about then there's this resurrection of Jesus and people coming to see him. The way that's normally translated is at the end of the week as it began to dawn into the first of the week. Well, the word is Sabbaths. It's Sabbaton. It's plural Sabbath. It's plural Sabbath. So it's really saying at the end of the Jewish Sabbaths as it began to dawn toward the first of the Christian Sabbaths. That's what the text is saying. And so, 
Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. He changes the ceremonial aspect to better serve man in the New Covenant era. Um, We have in Mark 1, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. He is changing the day of the Sabbath for the purpose of the good of man, to help man to see the change in history, the major event in history of Christ's resurrection. The change of the day of the Sabbath is for man's instruction. So, what's the Lord's Day? Why do we talk about the Lord's Day? The day of the Lord. Revelation 1.10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, as John says. What is he talking about? Well, the Sabbath is called the Lord's Day in the Old Testament. It's called the day of the Lord. And you go, oh, day of the Lord, Lord's Day, those seem different. No, it's just, you just put words in the genitive form, which means something's coming from something else, and you have to translate it as either possessive or as creative. And so the holy day of the Lord in Isaiah 58, the day of the Lord, you could also just translate that as the Lord's holy day. Okay, so the Lord's day or day of the Lord, they are both fine ways of translating the same thing. So, Isaiah talks about the Sabbath as the Lord's Day. And why would we expect, all of a sudden in the book of Revelation, for the day of the Lord or the Lord's Day to be something different? Psalm 118 communicates to us about the day when Christ was rejected and then he became the chief cornerstone, that this is a day that the Lord has appointed. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Well, Peter, in the book of Acts, infallibly interprets that for us. What is this day that the Lord has appointed? Well, Peter tells us that this is the day of the resurrection. And so, this resurrection... Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. And we're told that the day that Christ in Psalm 2, he's begotten by the Father, in a certain sense, there's this, you know, this, this new beginning, where that's interpreted in Acts 13 for us infallibly as the day when Jesus was raised up. Right. So you see there's a quote there of it in Acts 13. You can see that on page 7. And it's being interpreted as the day of the resurrection. So, The changing of the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day without a change of the proportion, one in seven, is given to us in further example on page eight. So again, Matthew 28, one, we have the end of the old Sabbaths and the start of the new Sabbaths. Mark 16.2 shows that the first day is the day of the resurrection. Luke 24 shows us that the first day of the week is the day of the resurrection. So, This new Sabbath is not, as the Seventh-day Adventists want to say, the last day of the week. Again, it's very clear in the Bible that the first day of the week is the day of the resurrection. So, there's also this idea in the Old Covenant of an eighth-day Sabbath. It points forward to the change of day. And circumcision was to be given on the eighth day. And so these are things that point to the change of the Sabbath. Uh, John 20 talks about the resurrection being on the first day of the week. And then the apostles meet the next day, the eighth day, not the next day, sorry, the the next week, the eighth day, and uh, we have this idea of of the the meeting of the apostles continuing on the first day of the week. They they keep meeting on the first day. Hebrews 4.9 says, There remains therefore a Sabbath for the people of God. That text takes a lot of time to walk through, but Hebrews 4.9 is an explicit statement that there is a Sabbath for the people of God in the New Covenant. We're told over and over again in the Old Testament, Leviticus 23, Numbers 28, we're told that the Sabbath day is a day to assemble together for the worship of God. That is true in the Old Covenant, it's true now. And Hebrews 10.25 tells us to not forsake the assembly not forsake assembling together. We have to have a day to assemble. We have to have a day to assemble. So go to page 9. We have the commandment to assemble. 
1 Corinthians 16, verse 2 says, hey, when you assemble together on the first day, why are they doing that? Why are they coming together on the first day? Because that's the new Christian Sabbath. They're assembling on the day of assembly, the day of holy convocation, the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7 talks about the apostles gathering the church on the first day for the Lord's Supper. So, the origins of the day of rest are Genesis 2. They're repeated in Exodus 16. And then we have Exodus 20 with the giving of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath command is a part of the moral law. It's perpetual. The proportion is the moral element. And God has a right to set which day as a ceremony. He set it as the last day of the week in the Old Covenant and as the first day of the week in the New Covenant. The ceremonial law is defined for us in a lot of particular examples, case laws. And what we get is based upon the age or epoch that God's church is in, there's a a history of salvation that helps us to see the work of God. The one example is circumcision, which looks forward to Christ. Right? It's the, the bleeding and cutting of the male genitive, generative organ. Right? It creates children. And that blood points to the bleeding of Christ, and it being on the male's organ of generation is something that points to the child to come, a future generation. Circumcision looks forward to the Messiah, to the seed. Baptism looks backward at what is already done. There's no more continuing to bleed because there's no more need for blood. The sacrificial system looks forward to the sacrifice, the spilling of blood. The Lord's Supper looks back and there's no more spilling of blood. The garden, the tabernacle, the temple, these all look forward to the filling. There is all this space, holy space, and now there's the church, which is the holy people that fills all space. And it looks back. There was a national Israel church. Now there's an international church. That looks back. The nation looks forward to when all the nations will be brought in. There was a national and physical holiness that looked forward to all nations and all space being made holy. We have an international church that brings spiritual holiness to all space. Even trinkets are supposed to have holy unto the Lord written on them, according to Zechariah. And so we look back because we have the reality, the substance. A seventh-day Sabbath, you start the week and you look forward to the rest. A first-day Sabbath, you start the week in rest. And as you go through the week, you look back. The idea is you start from a position of rest because Christ has completed the work and we work out of the position of rest. He's completed the work of paying for our sins. And we are working from a position of rest. The moral law is unchanged. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. The Sabbath obligation before the giving of the law with manna in Exodus is a demonstration of that. The fourth commandment shows us that it's a moral law. How do you love God and your neighbor? By keeping God's commandments. The Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law as we saw in Romans 13 early on. When Paul listed out the, first, the, the second table, showing us how to love our neighbor by showing us that all of the commandments about treating your neighbor in the Ten Commandments are how you love your neighbor. How do you love God? You love God with the first four commandments. The love of God is defined by 1 John as doing what God commands. James calls the law of God the, the royal law. The moral law is the royal law. The ceremony has changed. The moral element has not. And so you can see there, um, I have more texts that are useful uh, for considering that. And also I have on page 11, 
proof texts for showing that you're not to invent human traditions for worship, and that includes inventing holy days, as 1 Kings 12 demonstrates. Um, on the original handout, the first handout, I also have for you the fourth commandment from the Westminster Confession or larger catechism uh, laid out there. And so I hope that's useful for your studies for the rest of the Sabbath day. So comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Courtney? So um, if I'm correct in this, <coughs> very good teaching, by the way, thank you. Um, is it right then, I'm assuming that this is the position that we, we observe, is, uh, where we stand is creation uh, is a gift. It's a gift from the Father to the Son. And the reason for the Sabbath being on the first day of the week is because Christ completed the work. It's done. And that's the old system. And he is now instituting the new system. He rose on the first day of the week because as a sign that it's all about him. Uh, all of uh, everything that occurs, everything that um, has happened, even the system from um, Adam and Eve and, and uh, is under that aegis that this is for Jesus. Uh, this is redemption was the was the was the mission all along. It's the it's what's going to happen. It, it's the way it's supposed to be, and this is a gift from the Father to the Son. Our salvation, our, <coughs> our lives, um, the the sun, the moon. Uh, it, it's all there for Jesus. It's the the gift from the Father to the Son, and that's and we are participating in that. And when we uh, keep the Sabbath and and assemble together, we are reflecting on. The glory uh, that's the Father and, and the Son and the Holy Spirit and um, the gift from the Father to, to the Son. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Sabbath day is a day where we can think about the, the inheritance of the Son given by the Father. Yeah, absolutely. And second question, if somebody did want to, because uh, this will be brought up, I know, with with my family uh, regarding Christmas um, if somebody is saying well I'm not keeping it as a holy day uh, I just want I want to remember uh, and celebrate Christ's birth coming uh, and if, 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 if that means so much to you like it does to me Jesus is in all of us um, Jesus' birth and we, we love right like a thank you, Lord, uh, for his coming, and this is his birthday, and I'm keeping his birthday, but I'm not saying you have to keep it, and this has to be a holy day. Uh, that would be idolatrous and invention, but um, if it's something they just want to observe by uh, giving a gift to somebody, as, as the sun is a gift, uh, his coming is a gift, and that kind of commemorates it. Is that wrong? Um, so I think the issue with Christmas is that it is acknowledged as a holy day by many religious institutions, and that Rome claims it as a holy day of obligation. Sure. And so we, we, we can try to claim it as not being Christmas, but as being a birthday for Jesus, and not having a relationship to the imposition of you know, the papal antichrist. But... If we, if we do that, what we're doing is we're taking all of the trappings of popery and saying, this isn't popish. And, and so we can try to separate it, but it's going to look like we're participating in popery. And so it's going to appear as though we are. And so it will at least be the appearance of sin. The second thing is um, doing it as an act of honoring God is still an act where you're saying, I'm taking this thing and I'm offering to God for his honor. And so it still becomes an act of idolatry if it's for the honor of God as opposed to, uh, you know, it's just something I want to do that's for my fun. Nobody wants to admit that, right? Everybody's like, oh, the commercialization of Christmas is bad. Okay, well, if the commercialization of Christmas is bad, 
and the religious part is not instituted by God, whether you're trying to impose it on other people or just do it for yourself to honor God, it's still an act of religious service. So it's either an act of religious service, in which case it's invention and it's idolatry, or it, it's, it's purely commercialized enjoyment, and if that's the case, then you're giving the appearance of sin. When, I, if, when I'm praying to the Lord and I just I thank Him for His Son, I thank the Father for sending Christ. Um, is that not the same thing? I'm, I'm giving a religious service, and I'm, I mean, the prayer, of course, is right, and I'm disputing that. But uh, when I say thank you, Father, for your Son, um, why could I not do that with uh, on December 25th as well, but not say this is a supposed to be a holy day? So yeah, giving thanks for God and uh, giving thanks to, to the Father for the Son should occur every day. And that's appointed by God. But having a birthday party for Jesus is not appointed by God. And that's, that's what I'm saying. This is specifically having a day to appoint, appointed as the celebration of the birth of Christ, having a birthday party for Jesus, that's not appointed. There is no warrant for it in the Word of God. And so it's, it's a, if it's a religious act, it's idolatry. It's been invented. And if it's not a religious act, and we're just trying to say, well, I'm just doing this because I like the trappings. Well, what we're saying is we like the trappings of idolatry. And we're trying to use the trappings of idolatry for fun, which gives the appearance of sin and I think is, is not helpful for the creation of a distinctly Christian culture. So real quick, somebody couldn't say they do like the trappings, but have separate themselves from the idolatry. If I have a Christmas tree and I have all the other things and then I say, look, I'm not doing this as a celebration of Jesus. I'm doing this just because I like these things. And I'm doing it specifically at the same time that other people do it for the celebration of Jesus. That would be sort of like, I don't like this, I don't like Buddha, but I, I like all the Buddhist stuff, and so I've got all the things around, and I think it's kind of cool looking, but I don't, you know, believe in it. I think that's the, yeah. it's the same sort of thing. It's the appearance, yeah, get right. the appearance. Or I only like rainbows, because I like the Noahic Covenant, I put a rainbow flag on my house, yeah. is that going to cause confusion? And the enemy can use that. Right. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would bless it to uh, the teaching of our souls. We ask that you would cause Christ to be our teacher and that you would transform us after his image. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.